This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Has the climate movement failed? I'm Sean Ealing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. It's hard to look at the world at this moment and not conclude that the answer is yes. Despite all the activism, despite all the protest, despite all the warnings, the world has continued pumping toxic emissions into the atmosphere, and we are still in many ways hostage to the fossil fuel industry. A new book by Andreas Malm, a professor of human ecology at Sweden's Lund University, asks a very simple question. Why? Why do we allow this? And more to the point, why hasn't the movement dedicated to stopping it become far more radical than it has? If we were serious, if we really believed what we already know about climate change, we would be doing everything humanly possible to shift course. And yet we're not. Even the most ambitious proposals on the table with little chance of passing are scarcely sufficient. This is the starting point of Mom's book. And if you follow his logic, it leads to some uncomfortable conclusions. He says it bluntly. We should, quote, damage and destroy new CO2 emitting devices, put them out of commission, pick them apart, demolish them, burn them, blow them up. Let the capitalists who keep investing in the fire know that their properties will be trashed, end quote. For mom, we have a choice to make. Destroy the property that's destroying the planet or sacrifice the earth on the altar of that property. Mom's book, it's titled How to Blow Up a Pipeline, is clearly provocative, but it's also morally serious, as serious as it gets, in fact. To be perfectly honest, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I have more questions than answers. So I decided to invite Andrea's mom onto the show to talk it out. Andrea's mom, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sean. You teach human ecology, and that clearly informs how you think about these issues in pretty profound ways. So I want to start there. How would you describe your intellectual background and the role it's played in your evolution as a climate activist? So academically speaking, strictly, I have a background in economic history and what I do is mostly historical research. But I was an activist before I became an academic. So that's probably a deeper identity. I was also a journalist for a number of years before I became an academic. 
I'd like to, I don't know, fancy myself as an academic that has an ambition to talk to people outside of academia and not get stuck in the ivory tower, but trying to do research that is somehow meaningful for social movements, and in my case, primarily the climate movement. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess I switch hats. Sometimes I have my academic hat, sometimes I have my activist hat, and that's a little bit of a schizophrenic identity, but it's one that I can't... Yeah, I have to try to embrace that schizophrenia. <laughs> I wish more people did. So, <laughs> look, this is a huge question, almost certainly an annoyingly huge question, and it's impossible to sum up the entire climate crisis. But could you maybe just give us a sense of the current state of affairs just to kind of set the table for this discussion? <laughs> yeah. Where are you at? Where's yeah. your panic meter currently dialed, in other words? My panic meter was very high throughout the summer, higher than it's been since the summer of 2018, which was extremely bad in Sweden, where I live when we had unprecedented droughts and wildfires and heat waves. But this summer has really been a global season in hell with one climate disaster per week, if not per day, with, you know, wildfires from California to Spain to Turkey to Iran and onwards and heat waves and flooding in China and uh, Germany in New York, and that's not to mention the very, to some extent, underappreciated in their severity climate disasters unfolding in many countries in the global south, including places like Madagascar or uh, Afghanistan now suffering from extreme drought. And this is combined with a situation where investment in fossil fuel infrastructure is continuing. Despite institutions like the International Energy Agency saying that there can be no more new installations for producing oil and coal and gas, if we're going to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees, and probably that also holds for 2 degrees, and still you see all the major oil and coal and gas companies in the world planning for and executing expansion, even more pipelines, gas terminals, coal mines, and so on and so forth, from Australia to Norway to Iran to the US. And we are at a stage where we have to choose either continued fossil fuel production or a habitable planet for humanity. We can't have both. And our politicians, our leaders, our governments are so far not proving themselves capable of making that choice. They try to have it both ways, from Biden to Macron to Merkel, all the governments in advanced capitalist countries, even those who pay lip service to the existence of the climate crisis, unlike Donald Trump, for instance, they, they still preside over expanded production and continued business as usual. So far, they've proven themselves completely constitutionally incapable of getting us off from continued fossil fuel production. And that's the situation we're in. And how has the pandemic, assuming it has in some form or another, altered the climate situation? I know that oil consumption has returned to pre-pandemic levels and yeah. the demand for yeah. coal has increased. But in general, has it altered the dynamics in any serious way? It doesn't seem so, unfortunately. You know, there was, there was a lot of talk almost from the beginning of the pandemic about this being this golden opportunity to implement the transition <laughs> at long last. And all this, you know, rhetoric about the green recovery and things like that. It seems to have come to naught because 
What we had during the pandemic in 2020 was a dip in global CO2 emissions by around 7%. What we're looking at this year is a rebound back to business as usual, which means we'll have an increase in global CO2 emissions that will be the second sharpest ever recorded, the previous record being the rebound after the financial crash in 2008. Across the board, governments have poured stimulus money into fossil fuel companies and into aviation companies, car companies, without any strings attached and without any demands for them to get rid of fossil fuels. So it seems to me that the pessimists got it right that this opportunity has been lost and that we're seeing a rebound to business as usual. But in a sense, that's not very surprising because the pandemic killed the climate movement. Mm. The climate movement allowed itself to be killed, or at least temporarily, it suspended all activities when the pandemic broke out. And that was after the historic height of mobilization that we saw in 2019 in the global north. And in the absence of a climate movement on the streets with no popular pressure on these issues and no strong leverage from social movements, it's not that surprising that governments just continue as usual. Well, we're going to work our way back to the problem of capital and even government in action. But before we get there, I do you write about this in a book and I want to tease it out for the audience. And so I'll just ask you here, I mean, how the hell did we get here? You know, despite all the science, despite all the activism, despite all the warnings, how have we managed to keep sleepwalking into this ecological abyss? <laughs> That's the big question. I don't know if there's a one answer to it. You could probably fill an entire library with answers to this question. But fundamentally, we are living in a mode of production, an economic system where fossil fuels have been the energy base ever since the early 19th century, I would say. And when climate science matured in the early 1990s and uh, told governments that you need to get rid of fossil fuels, that wasn't a message on the margins. It was not about, you know, tinkering with some details in the system. It struck at the very marrow at the very spine, at the very core, the backbone of the whole economic system. And that in itself was an absolutely extreme challenge, one that our economists really haven't faced before, to face out an entire material foundation for what our economies have been doing for two centuries. So there has been in the climate crisis from the beginning a problem of an extremely dense concentration of interests in the status quo, challenged by the realization that we need to address the climate crisis. And those interests have won, not always, because the climate movement and others have achieved local victories, as in, you know, in the US, I don't know, cancelling the Keystone Excel pipeline, various local victories against a gas terminal here and a highway there and things like that. But overall, what we've seen ever since climate science matured is continued business as usual. And that's because we haven't really translated the climate crisis into a political crisis for these structures, for the fossil fuel production. And then you have, of course, you have a thousand other factors that need to be taken into account, including the organized sabotage of climate politics from 
fossil fuel companies to begin with, and nowadays from the far right, from Bolsonaro to Trump to far right parties all over Europe that do everything they can to stop climate action and instead target immigrants or non-white people in, in one form or another. Uh, and you have mechanisms in society for maintaining a kind of denial, not as in denying that the problem exists explicitly, but as in people continuing to live, even though they know what's going on, they live or we live as if nothing is happening. Yeah, I mean, that's actually kind of what I was getting at. I mean, you can call it cognitive dissonance, you can call it climate fatalism, as you do in the book, and we'll get into that later. But there is a lot of hypocrisy to go around here. And I don't want to shrink from that. I mean, I'm as guilty of this as anyone. And in some ways, I feel like I'm part of the problem. I know the situation we're in and I I continue to live my life as though I don't. Or maybe to be more fair to myself and people like me, I live as though I'm powerless, as though a begrudging acceptance is the only option. And so Mm. I put my bottles in the recycling bin and I roll it out to the street every Friday, but it all feels so pointless. But maybe that's just the story I'm telling myself because it's better to be impotent than morally culpable. Yeah, but this is part of the cognitive or psychological or I mean, fundamentally political problem here that people see themselves as responsible for the situation yeah. and feel that the level of action that I need to be on is at, you know, recycling bottles and things like that. I, I don't think, Sean, I don't think that you individually have a great deal of responsibility for this problem. I don't know you as a person, but I suspect you're not a CEO of an oil or gas or coal company. I don't think... Not that I'm aware of. No. You're probably not making any investment decisions. You're not one of those people who profit from the continued destruction of this planet. And I I suspect you're not one of the hyper-rich either who engage in extreme luxury emissions in the consumption sphere. So we shouldn't imagine ourselves being all of us responsible for this mess. The, The responsibility is heavily concentrated in a particular segment of people, namely those who take the actual investment decisions about what energy sources to exploit or not. The level of action that we as individuals need to engage in is in collective action together with others against the interests sustaining the production of fossil fuels. And you do something that strikes me as very important in this book. You frame the climate crisis as fundamentally a political economy problem. It's not a science problem. It's not a knowledge problem. We know everything we need to know to do what we know we need to do. But we're stuck where we're stuck because certain interests are invested in keeping us there. Mm. Is it too simple to say that what you think we really have is a capitalism problem? No, that's not too simple. (laughs) It's, it's, It's what it is. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Well, you write it early in the book, and I'll just quote you here and let you expound on it. You you say, the historical victory of capital and the ruination of the planet are one and the same thing. I mean, is that an indictment of capitalism as such, or is it an indictment of this manifestation of internal logic of capitalism was destined to lead us to this place in any case? Yeah, I would lean towards the latter. I mean, you can say that before capitalism got addicted to fossil fuels, it was based on traditional energy sources, water power, biomass, and animal power, and things like that. So there has been a point in time when capitalism was non-fossil, and 
perhaps you can conceive of a future version of capitalism that is no longer dependent on fossil fuels. I mean, capitalism is a very adaptable, flexible, protein system. We know that from the past centuries. So we can't rule that out. But what is very clear is that there is one important segment or fraction of the capitalist class that has to go and it's the fraction that profits from the production of fossil fuels. That part of the, of the capitalist class just has to go out of existence if we're going to solve the problem or get it under control and manage it. It's not about avoiding climate crisis any longer. It's about getting it down to manageable proportions. And that means in itself a confrontation with a significant part of the, of the capitalist class. Let me just take one example, a country that's not so often discussed in these contexts is France. The single largest company in France is Total, which is one of the major oil and gas companies in the world, currently constructing what would be the world's longest heated oil pipeline in Tanzania and Uganda. They just signed a contract with Iraq for massive expansion of the oil and gas infrastructure there. They want to go into the Arctic to get even more fossil gas. Now, this company cannot continue to exist as such. It cannot continue in this fashion if we're going to have a planet where we can live without you know, going up in flames. So I think that company should be taken over by the state in France. It should be socialized, nationalized, and forced to quit fossil fuel production and do something else, such as cleaning up the atmosphere instead of polluting it even more. Is that compatible with continued capitalist status quo in France? Or would that challenge to such an important part of the capitalist class in France set in motion a process that leads beyond the capitalist present in that country. I don't know. It's certainly not on the table because Macron is backing this company on all fronts. So will Le Pen if she were to become president. That's the kind of change we need, but it's not on the cards anywhere. Well, I want to be as clear as possible about what you're asking climate activists and citizens in general to consider. And I'll just read directly from your book, right? I mean, you argue that the ruling classes simply will not do what's necessary. So you argue the movement should, and I'll quote now, damage and destroy new CO2 emitting devices, put them out of commission, pick them apart, demolish them, burn them, blow them up. Let the capitalists who keep investing in the fire know that their properties will be trashed. Now, I think that's about as clear as any statement could possibly be. So let me just ask, <laughs> why do you think going in this direction will succeed where other nonviolent approaches have failed? Well, to begin with, I don't know that it would succeed. It's not like I have a crystal ball where I've seen that I know that we'll win if we start doing this. But I think that the situation is so dire and it's so extreme that we have to experiment and have to try what we've tried so far has only taken us so far. It's given us limited success, but we still haven't managed to dent the curves and bring emissions down and start the transition. And I mean, after a summer like this and after you know all the disasters that keep raining down on us, it strikes me as paradoxical that people let these machines, these properties that are destroying the planet, 
continue to operate without going into the facilities and uh, shutting them down and uh, wrecking them. And uh, I, I do think that the past experiences of social struggles suggest that if you're fighting a very powerful enemy, you need to engage in tactics that can um, impose costs on that enemy. And this usually includes forms of property destruction and confrontation with uh, the ruling order that goes beyond absolutely peaceful civil disobedience. I don't know of any relevant analogy or parallel struggle in the past that has succeeded without an element of more militant methods. And I don't see how we can imagine that we will win this fight while staying as gentle and kind and polite as we have in the climate movement so far. Most scholars agree that successful protest movements depend in large part on mass participation. And violence, historically, has hindered that. But Andreas' mom sees it differently. After a quick break, he'll explain why. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Well, as you know, and I give you credit, because in the book you you deal with this head on. It is more or less a truism in the literature on civil disobedience and nonviolence that mass movements succeed or fail on the basis of mass participation. And that the easiest way to deter mass participation is to turn to violence. You have a lot of issues with that argument. And so I just want to toss it out now and and ask you, what do you think that misses? What do you think is wrong about that? Well, I think, well, all the historical cases that are advanced in favor of this argument 
show the opposite. But we don't need to get bogged down in the distant past. We can just look at what happened in the U.S. in 2020. After the murder of George Floyd, people rioted in Minneapolis. And three days after the murder, they uh, stormed the police station in the 3rd Precinct and burned it, completely gutted it. And that uh, apparently, as far as I can tell at least, served as a catalyst for people to engage in BLM protests on a scale never seen before. And of course, the overwhelming majority of demonstrations were peaceful, but the element of property destruction cannot be discounted as counterproductive. I think that, to the contrary, what the storming of that police station signaled to people is that the systematic violence perpetrated by police forces against African Americans is not our fate. It's not a law of nature, something that we just have to resign to. It's something that we can physically disrupt and put an end to. And that inspired people to engage in activism on a scale never seen before in U.S. history. It was, as far as I know, the, the largest social movement in American history, if you count by the number of people on the streets. The climate movement needs something similar because people tend to perceive fossil fuel infrastructure as a fact of nature, something beyond our control, something that we cannot put a stop to. And therefore, those disasters that are destroying our lives are something that we can just try to live with, to adapt to as best as we can. But of course, this infrastructure is possible to shut down and to destroy. It's just that that needs to be demonstrated. And we need similar Minneapolis moments where the fossil fuel infrastructure that is destroying this planet is brought back into the realm of human action and where we can actually show to people that these coal mines, these pipelines, these gas terminals, they can be put out of action. And that has to be done unless we're going to just drown in an ever-rising tidal wave of disasters. And what people tend to forget also is that, you know, the disasters that we saw this summer all over the, the globe, that's not what global heating is going to look like. I mean, people experience these things and say, aha, this is the new normal. But there is no baseline in global warming. It gets worse all the time. The longer you continue with CO2 emissions, the more you add to what's already accumulated in the atmosphere, the worse it will be. So every taste of global warming is always ever a foretaste, which means that 10 years down the road of continued business as usual, what happened this summer might look extremely benevolent. And my point here is we cannot adapt to continuous business as usual. And what really rhymes me is the discourse that you're seeing right now. So for instance, yesterday, countries in the Mediterranean unveiled this new um, project for cooperating in adaptation. So they're going to institute new measures for preventing forest fires and, uh, you know, having more efficient um, firefighting and things like that in the belief that we can have successful measures that allow us to adapt to what happened this summer. But it's going to get worse. If you continue to put out more CO2 into the atmosphere, it will get worse the next summer and the summer after that. What the discussion really should be about in the Mediterranean countries is how do we close down Total? Or how do we close down ENI, the Italian oil company, another of the world's largest climate criminals? How do we shut down the pipelines that crisscross the Adriatic so that we don't pour even more fuel on the fire? But that's not the discourse we're having. 
Well, look, I'll be honest. I'm very much of two minds when it comes to a lot of these questions. And I honestly don't know where I stand on some of them. I mean, I wonder how much, how concerned you are about unleashing these sorts of forces, right? I mean, in the book, you call it the quote, fine art of controlled political violence. But I don't think political violence can be controlled, at least not reliably. And especially when the ends, in this case, our actual survival are so extreme. How much does that worry you? No, of course, of course. There are all sorts of pitfalls and dangers and risks. And we're so late in the day that no path forward is risk-free. If you just continue with business as usual, that entails an enormous amount of risks. If you have states launching very swift and radical emissions cuts, that comes with the risk of state authoritarianism. If you try solar geoengineering, that has tremendous risks. Peaceful civil disobedience as an exclusive tactic for the climate movement has the risk of inefficacy. And escalation of the kind that I advocate has the risk of unleashing political forces, violence that cannot be controlled. Yes, that risk exists. I do think that political violence can be controlled. I sort of find it hard to endorse the idea that as soon as you engage in any kind of violence, it will automatically spiral beyond control into some kind of, I don't know, vendetta or violence orgy or something like that. And again, the the George Floyd uprising last year is a case in point because I think that there was collective discipline about the level of violence that the radical edge of that movement engaged in. As far as I know, no one uh, took a gun and assassinated uh, police chiefs or something like that. And no one sent suicide bombers into police headquarters. And that's not because you can't get hold of guns in the U.S. I think you can. It's, it's fairly easy. But there was a general realization that if the movement oversteps that boundary, that very important limit, and starts killing people, the backlash will be tremendous. And uh, there are many other cases where you have militant movements deciding that we're engaging in this specific kind of violence. We're not going to harm individuals. We're not going to kill people, but we're going to harm property and have successfully maintained that limit and that, that boundary. I don't think that's impossible. Do you think what you're advocating can be called terrorism or eco-terrorism? Yeah, yeah, of course. Some people would call it that, but that's not a definition of terrorism that I can see would be justifiable. Terrorism, if it's as a word, it's going to have any kind of meaning, is the indiscriminate killing of civilians for the purpose of instilling fear. And that's very far from what I advocate. I would tweak that a little bit. I, I, I agree with the indiscriminately killing of civilians, but not necessarily to create fear, but in order to provoke a political response. And fear is a mechanism in yeah, yeah, doing yeah. that, right? Sure. But if you advocate the destruction of property. And in this case, the property that is at the very core of the problem, the property that actually kills people because people die from climate catastrophe. If you advocate putting these machines out of business, I don't see how that can fall under a reasonable definition of what terrorism is. Some people will call it terrorism, just like some people would call the BLM protesters terrorists last year. Yeah, and I guess we, it should be clear too, you you are suggesting the destruction of property, not the harming of people. And I guess, is that, maybe this is a good point. 
Do you draw a distinction between sabotage and violence? Well, you know, some people say, including the Catholic workers that I write about in the book, Jessica Restenchek and Ruby Montoya, who uh, systematically destroyed property along the Dakota Access Pipeline, I think it was in Iowa, when when it was being constructed. They come from a particular radical Catholic tradition where they see this as falling under the definition of nonviolence. So they would destroy a lot of equipment, burn it, blow it up, and classify that as nonviolence. I myself have no problem with that logic, but most philosophers, as far as I can tell, would say that this is a form of violence because the owners of these things perceive themselves to be harmed, their interests being harmed, even though their own bodies are not being harmed. And therefore, the the argument would be that this is a kind of violence. But all philosophers that I'm aware of see this as a form of violence qualitatively different from actually targeting the bodies of people in question. So there is a difference by, you know, slashing a tire and slashing the lungs of the owner of the car. These are two completely different types of violence, and the distinction between them is clear. It's also, I think, hard to try to dispute the very general perception that if people march down a street and smash all the windows in the shops, what they're doing is nonviolent. That's not how people generally see it. A riot is generally perceived as a violent thing, even if it doesn't harm a, a human being. So in my book, I accept that philosophical definition and the common sense use of the term here that property destruction is a form of violence, but it's a lesser form of violence, qualitatively different from harming human beings. That said, I wouldn't argue with comrades Resnicek and and Montoya and say that, no, 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 you were in fact violent when you did this. I think their uh, philosophy is fine. Yeah, I mean, do do you worry about violence, even the kind of targeted violence against property, shattering the more capital that the climate movement has built up? I mean, even in the case of the BLM protest, I don't think burning down police precincts helped the movement. I think the movement would have accomplished what it accomplished without that. I think that risked turning public opinion against it. But I don't think it succeeded because of that. Uh, I think it was unhelpful, to put it mildly. But anyway, back to the question. I mean, do Mm. do you worry about taking up violence, however limited, undermining the, the moral capital that the movement has built up over the years? Of course, the moral capital that the climate movement has built up would be squandered the moment individuals are harmed. If someone would go in and assassinate shareholders in ExxonMobil or Shell or something like that, we would have a very strong backlash against the climate movement, which is one reason not to do this. Another being that it's prima facie wrong anyway to kill someone. I don't think that we would squander the moral capital if we, if some of us, in a moment of climate disaster, engaged in precisely targeted property destruction, as in targeting total property in protest against the construction of this pipeline in East Africa, or in my country, Sweden, destroying the construction equipment at yet another insane highway south of Stockholm that will increase our emissions uh, enormously. I think these acts stand a good chance of gaining popular support particularly if they happen in moments of climate disaster. And again, I think it's remarkable that you can have an entire summer like the one we've just seen without these things happening. 
It's their absence that is really <laughs> paradoxical. How is it possible that people can experience all of this death around them and know at some level of, of their consciousness that we will just have more of this death and not do anything about the source of the problem? Yeah, you know, I honestly don't know how effective a small number of activists you know, committed to this sort of escalation could be in terms of deterring capital and deterring the fossil fuel industry. I'm slightly more confident that it would produce some fairly predictable political responses. And I worry about harsher laws cracking down on peaceful protest. I worry about sure, sure. Um, inadvertently empowering the opponents to climate action. I know that certainly in our country, there would be yeah. a lot of Republicans giddy at the thought of you know, yeah, lefty yeah. climate activists you know, blowing up pipelines. They would exploit the mm. living hell out of that. And to that sort of criticism or hesitation, you say what? <laughs> uh, of course, I understand that hesitation and that concern. And it's one that I, I share. Not to overexploit the BLM analogy here, but that kind of Republican right in the US did everything it could to exploit the violence during the BLM, BLM protests to demonize that movement and say these are terrorists and uh, crazy Marxists and whatever. And that's the usual response when vested interests are challenged. You will get repression, you will get demonization. The way that we should view this is, I think, that what we need is a political movement of size, a groundswell of unrest that is so large that it can overwhelm this kind of demonization. Rather like what happened again in the U.S. last year, where, in my reading, the, the Floyd protest contributed to the downfall of Donald Trump rather than the other way around, despite all the attempts by the Republican right to exploit that in this manner. And a difference here that we need to remember all the time is that you can have a, a sort of average of police violence decade after decade, but you cannot have that in global warming. This crisis is hardwired to deteriorate. And that means that whenever you discuss these things and consider these things, what will the response be from your opponents and things like that? You need to take into account that one, two, three, four, five years down the road, everything will be much worse than what it is now. And if there is some rationality left in this species, this would presumably mean that you have a chance to win people over for the cause of taking this kind of infrastructure out. I should say that I don't advocate property destruction as a panacea, as a kind of silver bullet, as the only thing that the climate movement should do, nor do I argue that small groups engaged in underground actions is the one way forward. I think that we need a mass movement with a great diversity of tactics, ranging from the kind of hunger strikes that you see right now in Berlin, where some young activists are about to expire because they're striking, hunger striking for so long to push for climate action from, from politicians, to the completely peaceful demonstrations that we'll see in the next few months in Glasgow during COP26, but also a more radical flank. Because, again, every social struggle of some importance has contained that. And I don't see why we in the climate movement can imagine that we would succeed without it. As you know, there was a huge study that was just released by Oxford University making the case that shifting to renewables would actually save us trillions. That's trillions with a T of dollars over the yeah. long haul. If that's true, 
the only people who would lose if we don't shift to renewables are the people invested in oil wells and coal mines. Now, now, does the economics being so clearly on our side change your thinking at all? I mean, is there a case that the market will course correct and leverage these opportunities? Well, I would wish that that (laughs) was the case. But unfortunately, I don't think so, because the paradox here is that the cheaper renewables get, the less profit you can make out of them if you are a big energy company. And uh, there is a a recent study by Brett Christophers, a paper published in New Political Economy, that shows precisely this, that for companies like ExxonMobil, Shell, Total, renewable energy projects generate an internal rate of return. So uh, that's a measure of profit that they use around 5%, while fossil fuel projects generate something like 15 to 20%. So three to four times as much profit, which means that they are continuing to invest in fossil fuels, not because they are cheaper, but precisely because they are more expensive. And renewable energy, what this study apparently outlines is this amazing development in renewable energy technologies, which really is perhaps the best news that we have on the climate front. And you see the curve in the cost of renewable energies moving progressively downwards. And the trend over the long haul will be for this curve to move towards zero. And that's because sunlight and wind come for free. You don't need any human labor to produce these fumes. While on the other hand, oil and gas and coal cannot materialize through natural processes. They can only be brought underground by means of human labor. Therefore, they are commodities on a market and therefore they can generate profit. So what this means is as long as you leave the energy transition in the hand of private investors, you won't have any energy transition. You might have what we have now, an expansion in renewable energy infrastructure on top of the fossil fuel infrastructure. But climate doesn't care how many wind turbines we build or solar panels if we also build pipelines and coal mines and gas terminals. You have to stop the fossil fuel production and switch to renewable energy if you're going to stabilize or at least minimize the destabilization of the climate. And the market is not going to do that. It's going to happen if you have political intervention and if you stop the oil and gas and coal companies from having the fate of humanity in their hands and deciding what energy to exploit on the basis of profit. Well, this is the tricky part because you know we can look at the falling prices of renewables and conventional economic theory says, sure, companies will act accordingly and redirect investment. But yeah. inertia is a hell of a drug. Yes, yes, yes. And cheaper doesn't necessarily translate to maximal profitability when you have companies that are already deeply invested in fossil fuel infrastructure. And that's part of the problem here. Yeah, yeah, inertia is an absolutely central category here and, and something that people tend to not appreciate fully. Just look at Norway, our the neighboring country here where I am, the largest oil and gas producer in Europe, if you exclude Russia. In 2019, they inaugurated the largest oil field ever called Jon Sverdrup, and that's slated to operate until 2070. And part of the inertia here is that when you open up these enormous new oil fields, you have sunk capital in huge fixed objects. 
And if you close them down after half a year or something like that, they won't yield the return on the expenses because they are so expensive and large objects. So they need to operate for years before you have a sufficient revenue stream to cover the expenses made in the investment. And once they have done so, the owners will have an interest in keeping these installations going for as long as they yield a profit. So the interest here, of course, is to keep this oil field running for half a century, which is just, you know, this kind of planning completely blows apart any carbon budget, any reasonable trajectory for getting out of the scenario we're moving towards, which is, as uh, the UN General Secretary laid out the other day, three degrees of warming this century, which will be unspeakable catastrophe. So the inertia in the sector of fossil fuel production is really central to the whole problem that we're having. Yeah, I mean, one thing certainly seems clear. I mean, at this point, the only thing in the way are fossil fuel companies using their economic and political power to thwart this transition. In other words, just straight up corruption. And if the sunk cost logic of big oil is the only remaining barrier, then maybe more boycotts and divestment and marching can really get us over the top. But if that doesn't work, I don't know. Yeah, if that doesn't work, what do we do? Do we conclude that we have tried peaceful things, they didn't work, so we die? Or do we conclude that, okay, we've tried the peaceful things, they didn't work, do we try something else? I would be up for trying something else. Because I can't really reconcile myself to a scenario of unmitigated climate change. Human beings have been around for a long time, and we've confronted a lot of problems. But is there something fundamentally different about the climate crisis? That's what I'll ask Andreas Mom after one more short break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. 
Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I'm curious what you think actually is the most comparable or instructive historical analog to the climate movement. And you, you mentioned quite a few in the book, particularly the women's suffrage movement. Yeah. You know, you said a minute ago that there really isn't any examples of movements like this succeeding without some element of intimidation or or force or violence. I, obviously, I think that the default counterexample to that is the civil rights movement in America, which you do tackle in the book. And so I'll just throw that out there and let you take that wherever you want. So I don't know that there is a really apt analog for the situation we're facing because the climate crisis is about a category of energy, a type of energy. It's about other things as well. I mean, we haven't even mentioned deforestation and methane and, and these things. So we should, of course, keep in mind that it's not only fossil fuels. It's not only the fossil fuel companies. It's just that they are the core of the problem. But most of the analogs that are floating around in this discussion are about changing um, political relations, institutions, as in, you know, having the rights for women to vote or ending slavery or getting civil rights for everyone, regardless of the color of their skin or movements for democracy or for toppling dictatorships and things like that. These are different because they are not about completely shedding a material substratum from our economy. So <laughs> I don't know if there is any exact parallel to the situation we're facing here. And I, I don't think there is, for what it's worth. I think we need to try to grope at meaningful analogies in all the histories that we're dealing with here. I mean, everything from the suffragettes to the civil rights movement to the abolition of slavery. I mean, that's perhaps a useful analog because it was also about, in a sense, a type of energy, namely the bodies of African Americans that were overexploited and that led to incredible suffering. And that whole phenomenon just had to go completely. And that's perhaps a reasonable analogy. And we know what that required. I mean, in the US, it required quite a lot of violence. That's not a reason to advocate uh, civil war in the US. <laughs> But we shouldn't have illusions about uh, how easy it will be to defeat the interests that are committed to continuing with this energy source. Yeah, I know you said earlier that there are no guarantees of success, whatever we do or don't do. Yeah. But in terms of potential blowback or potential backfires, what concerns you the most? I mean, if, if the movement did go this direction and it did start destroying property yeah. and disrupting investment, are there any ways in which that might actually trickle down and impact negatively the very people who support you need? Would it result, for example, in higher energy prices, at least in the in the in the short term, or, or something like that? I'm just I'm thinking of the politics. Yeah, of course. I mean, I have a number of concerns. One would be that people who engage in this kind of action are reckless and uh, how should I put this? Unintelligent in the way they go about it. I don't know. They they build a bomb and they accidentally injure or even kill innocent bystanders or something like that. That would be disastrous. That could, of course, happen. I do think that it can be avoided, but it's certainly a risk. Another risk that's more perhaps obviously apparent is that when environmental activists start considering sabotage, there is a temptation to target more or less everything. So for instance, after my book came out in France, there was a group 
called La Ronce, meaning brambles, that started advocating and to some degree also conducting acts of sabotage, not only against SUVs and total property, but against Coca-Cola. So they uh, encouraged people to go into supermarket stores and open the bottles of Coca-Cola bottles so the, the fizz would leave the bottles as a way to protesting Coca-Cola and something about the sugar industry or something like that. And that's a kind of sabotage that would clearly just piss people off. Ordinary consumers who go into supermarkets and see Coca-Cola bottles opened, and this would probably be primarily working class people. That's not a kind of sabotage that would be easy to explain to ordinary people. It would rather put the burden on them instead of on the real culprits here. The temptation among, and this is a temptation that you can see in Extinction Rebellion and other climate movements as well, that do not engage in sabotage, is that we are in such despair about the state of the earth that we want to bring down virtually all of of industrial civilization and therefore target everything. I think that's a very unproductive way to go about it. I think you need to concentrate your forces and be selective. You're not going to accomplish anything if you target everything virtually by tautology. And I also think that we need to be as careful as we can to avoid harming the interests of working people. So, for instance, when uh, when I describe actions that I was part of in 2007 against SUVs in Stockholm, we deflated SUVs in rich neighborhoods, but we did not go after SUVs that were obviously used by artisans or working people. We, we didn't go into popular neighborhoods, but we focused on neighborhoods of extreme affluence. And uh, that kind of precision is absolutely essential for the climate movement. You said something in the book that is kind of hit me in the gut, and I'm, <laughs> I've been thinking about it a lot since. You wrote, it is not only easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. It is also easier to imagine learning to die rather than learning to fight. Do you mean that the easiest thing to do is to fall into a kind of quietism or despair and, as I was saying earlier, become part of the problem uh, in that way? Or did you mean something very different? Yeah, that's the path of least resistance in our society, that we just go with the flow. And even if the flow brings us to catastrophe, people find it hard to imagine rising up against the state of the world, against how things are. Uh, I mean, that sort of passivity applies to many other issues than just the climate crisis. But because of the temporality of this crisis, because it gets worse and worse and worse, the passivity here is more problematic and more striking and needs to be broken in some uh, spectacular fashion, I think. Yeah, well, I should say we had to postpone this very conversation because my home was hit by a hurricane, the second in eight months. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the, the amount of climate disasters that have uh, struck the U.S. recently is just astounding. But again, people tend to forget that this is a cumulative problem, which means that you know everything that the U.S. experienced this summer is the result of all the CO2 that has been accumulating in the atmosphere so far. If you put out more there, it will be worse. What does a tolerable future look like to you at this point, given where we are? Well, I am an optimist in the sense that I think that it's technologically feasible not only to completely 
get rid of fossil fuels and replace them with renewable energy sources, but also actually in drawing CO2 down and take it out of the atmosphere and put it back under the ground. So I don't see it as impossible in any absolute technological sense to get us back to an atmospheric concentration of CO2 that we had before the Industrial Revolution. But we are facing um, vested interests in society that are hard to exaggerate. You know, the obstacles to what is possible technologically are gigantic. But I share the optimism of someone like Kim Stanley Robinson, who in his uh, amazing novel, The Ministry for the Future, outlines a kind of path out of this crisis. Now, there will be damage. I mean, there is already damage made to the planet. And it's not like it's a linear damage that you can just reverse in, in some kind of linear fashion. Some of these changes are irreversible when it comes to sea level rise and things like that. But I do think that if we were now to commence phasing out of fossil fuels as fast as humanely possible and also started drawing down CO2 from the atmosphere, we could minimize the damage and we could secure a planet that's livable for the duration of our species. It just requires an incredible amount of political struggle to get there. You wrote at the very end that if it is too late for resistance to be waged within a calculus of immediate utility, the time has come for it to vindicate the fundamental values of life, even if it only means crying out to the heavens. That's a very Sisyphean argument and it feels appropriately tragic. But I guess I wanted to end by just asking you, what are those fundamental values of life that require our defense right now. Yeah, this argument is in the context of a critique I have of climate fatalists who who say that it's already too late. So we just have to learn to die or to adapt if we can to this catastrophe, this tragedy. And we can't... What you call a bourgeois luxury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I argue that it isn't too late, but if we'd actually come to a situation where it is too late, let's say we have a situation where global temperatures have risen by four or five or six degrees and the planet is just completely on fire, then I think that even then, the moral obligation for people would be to protest and to say that I, we, reject this We are not part of this. We refuse to let this happen. Even though we cannot actually avert this scenario, we stand up against it. We register our opposition to this, even if it's only to the heavens in some kind of metaphysical sense. And we engage in whatever property destruction would be relevant at that hypothetical date. And an analogy I draw on here is that of the resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto, which was undertaken in the realization that it's too late. We cannot win this battle against the Nazis. We know that our people is doomed. We know that those people in the ghetto cannot be saved. But we fight because we have to register our resistance against this fate. We refuse to go quietly into the night. And we do this as a symbolic act of resistance almost to whoever comes after us. And, you know, this is the kind of uh, ultimate horizon of climate resistance, if you like. We're not in the situation of the Warsaw Ghetto now. But my argument here is that if the climate fatalists were to be proven right at some point in that it's actually too late to do something, then it would still be right to resist. 
And I guess finally, to the person out there who agrees with you about the stakes and the scale of the problem, but remains deeply uncomfortable for whatever reason with sabotage and and violence, what do you say? I say that's not a problem. Uh, You don't have to engage in sabotage to contribute to the climate struggle. It's perfectly fine for you to continue doing uh, whatever else you're doing. And uh, the bulk of our activities will always have to be peaceful. I just think that you should open up for a spectrum of actions. You don't need to engage in more radical actions yourself, but you should be open to the idea that others do so and that they can contribute to the climate struggle in that way. Look, this is a very hard conversation with more questions and answers, but I appreciate the seriousness with which you tackle it. And I thank you for being here. I really appreciated this. Likewise. I really appreciate your insightful questions and reflections. Andreas Mom, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Sean. It was really my pleasure and honor. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.